Turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 11. <clears throat> Don't you just love God's Word? We're in chapter 11, starting at verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah, and he will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I'm rich. I've found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt I will eat prophets. It was I in Gilead. They shall surely also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife. And for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Well, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Hosea together this morning, and uh, I hope you all enjoyed the encouraging picture of God as Father uh, last week, um, how he loves us and has compassion on us and restores us, because uh, we're back to the accusations and judgment again this week, as Marcia just read. Um, and yeah, th that's really been the pattern all throughout this book, hasn't it? It's been more weeks like that than the other. Um, really, all the way back to chapter 4, that's been the pattern. If, if you remember, just to kind of recap where we've been in Hosea really quickly, um, in the first three chapters, we had the personal story of Hosea and his wife Gomer and their three children. And uh, we saw in Hose how Hosea's wife was unfaithful to him um, and how God then had Hosea pursue his wife and call her to return to him. And then how Hosea's marriage was a picture of God's relationship with his people Israel. Like they too are unfaithful to him uh, and so God pursues them and calls them to return to him. And so from chapter 4 then through the end of the book, that's what God is doing. He's calling his unfaithful people over and over and over again to turn from their spiritual adultery against him and return to him. And he does that through these cycles of accusation and judgment that each end in a call to return. And so the, the first cycle ran from chapter 4 through the beginning of chapter 6 where God accuses Israel of not knowing him and he warns them of the judgment that will come on them, but then he calls them to truly know him and he promises to ultimately heal and restore them. 
And then from the end of chapter 6 through chapter 11 last week, we saw God accuse Israel of continual unfaithfulness to him. And he warns them again and again of the judgment that's coming. But then last week we saw in chapter 11 that in spite of their unfaithfulness to him, uh, the Lord loves Israel like a father loves his child. And so even though he's going to punish them for their sin, he loves them too much to give them up. So he's not going to ultimately come in wrath and destroy them, but he's going to roar like a lion and his children will respond to his voice and return to him. And so now starting in our passage this week through the end of the book, we have one more cycle of accusation and judgment that is going to ultimately culminate in hope at the very end of the book. And so what we're going to see here, though, in this cycle of accusation and judgment is that it's going to flow out of our passage from last Sunday. And so remember last week, the point was that the Lord is a father to Israel. But what we're going to see this time is that Israel acts like their physical father, Jacob, that instead of being so blown away by God's fatherly compassion and love toward them, that they turn from their idols and return to him and worship him and trust him to bless them like he promised. Instead, they respond by acting like their father Jacob the deceiver. They lie, they deceive, they manipulate, they scheme, they wrestle to get everything they can for themselves at the expense of anyone and everyone else. Instead of trusting that God will bless them like he promised, they take matters into their own hands and desperately fight for the blessings that God had already promised to give them and that they could only get from him. And so you can see from the main points on your handout there, what we're going to see in this passage is that God accuses Israel of being deceitful like Jacob, their father. And he he warns them then that he's going to deal seriously with their deceitfulness. But in the middle of the accusation and judgment, we do get one little glimpse. So we're going to see as we walk through this passage, physical ancestor in the same way that he was for Israel, but we are all born deceivers just like him. And our deceitfulness might not look exactly the same as it did for Israel, but we'll see as we go through this just how parallel our tendencies are to try to fight in our own strength for what God has already promised to give us and what we can only get from him. And and so ultimately then, the call to Israel to turn from their deceitfulness is the call to us as well. So let's let's look at the first few verses of the passage here just to kind of set things up. And then we're going to need to jump back into Genesis briefly and kind of refresh our memory of Jacob's story so that we can see all the connections that Hosea is drawing here. And then we'll see how Israel's deceitful like their father Jacob how God is going to deal seriously with their deceitfulness, how their only hope is to turn from their deceitfulness like their father Jacob, but then how all that confronts our deceitfulness as well. So so look with me here in your Bibles, uh, Hosea chapter 11, uh, verse 12 is where we're picking up. Um, So let's let's start reading there again. Uh, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful with the Holy One. So as we've seen throughout Hosea, uh, Ephraim here, Ephraim is the largest tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. So Hosea often uses that name to refer to the whole northern kingdom. Uh, And and so God is speaking here, and he's saying that Israel has surrounded him with lies and deceit. Like their their lies and deceit are so rampant, it's like nothing but lies and deceit everywhere. It's all God sees. But, but even more than that, even more than just being rampant, it's like it's an attack on him. It's like Israel has him surrounded by their lies. It's like they're laying siege to an enemy city and they're, they're trying to take it over. Except in this case, their enemy is God and their weapons are, are lies and deceit. 
And so it's a shocking picture, especially coming where it does right here on the heels of what we looked at last week. Like we go from this beautiful picture of, of God as a father, remembering how he taught Ephraim to walk and how his compassion grows warm and tender toward them, how they're going to respond to his voice because they're his children. And then the very next verse, they're surrounding him with lies and deceit. And then the second part of this verse is kind of tricky. The, the ESV that we typically use here translates it as, as a positive statement about Judah, um, who's the southern kingdom of Israel. And so it's, it sounds like it's a contrast with Israel in the north, that, that Israel is full of lies and deceit toward God, but, but Judah at least is still faithful to him. Uh, but what's confusing about that is if, we, if you look ahead a little bit at where we're going here in chapter 12, verse 2, God's about to bring an accusation against Judah. So it's like one minute Judah's good and the next minute Judah's bad. And so like what, what's going on here? Um, and so if you happen to have a different translation like the NIV or the, the CSB, you'll notice that they translate that verse from a negative perspective. Uh, the NIV says Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Uh, and the CSB translates it, Judah still wanders with God and is faithful to the holy ones, like small h and small o. And so why are these different translations so different on this verse? Well, the, the thing is, the, the original language here is vague. It's, it's really unclear whether the word God here is referring to the Lord or whether it's just some generic God. It, it could really be either one. And then I think the CSB gets it right there with the lowercase holy ones, plural. Um, so it's not necessarily referring to the Lord there either. And then the word walks in the ESV is probably closer to wanders like the CSB has. It has this picture of like wavering back and forth. And so it seems like what's going on here is that Jose is being intentionally vague. Like he, he's wording it in a way that's supposed to sound on one hand like Judah looks like they're walking with God, but they're actually wandering from the Lord. They're, they're wavering back and forth between God and the gods around them. So bounding God with lies and... So, so how are they doing that? Use the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. Um, we'll come back to that verse in just a minute. Let's keep going for right now. Chapter 12, verse 2. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. So God says that he has an accusation against, against Judah. But then he changes names in the middle of that verse, in verse 2 there, and starts talking about Jacob. Um, he says he's going to punish Jacob for his ways and repay him according to his deeds. And, and so then look what he says next in verse 3. It says, In the womb he took his brother by the heel. In his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us, The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So if, if you're familiar at all with the story of Jacob, uh, back in Genesis, you recognize the deeds here that Hosea begins to list out after saying that the Lord is going to punish Jacob for his deeds. They come from there. Um, but then at the end of verse 4, there's a shift. It basically says that when God met with Jacob at Bethel, he wasn't just speaking to Jacob. It says he spoke with us, meaning all of Jacob's descendants as well. So, so what's going on here is Hosea is connecting the people of Judah in his day to their ancestor Jacob in the past and saying, you all are just like him. And what God said to him, he's saying to you as well. 
And so there in verses 3 and 4, we get a really short summary of the story of Jacob, which hits on a couple of key points in his story. Um, We get one snapshot from his birth, and then another from when he was a grown man. And the point is that those two instances pretty much sum up Jacob. And so this is where it's really important for us to remember, though, um, Jacob's story. And so hopefully for most of you, you're at least familiar with that. But let's, we need to go back and just review really quickly so that we're all on the same page here. And so that we pick up on the connections that Jose is making here. So if you remember back in um, Genesis 25 is kind of where the story of Jacob picks up. And so Jacob's parents were Isaac and Rebekah. Um, Isaac was the son of Abraham, uh, the one that God promised to Abraham and Sarah, who was finally born when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. And so Isaac grows up, he marries Rebekah, and in Genesis 25, Isaac and Rebekah get pregnant, and God comes to Rebekah and tells her that there are twins in her womb. He tells her then, before the babies were even born, that the older is going to serve the younger. And so they know from the very beginning that the younger son is the one that God has chosen to carry on the covenant blessings that have been passed down from Abraham to Isaac. And so when it comes time for the babies to be born, um, the firstborn is red and hairy all over, and they name him Esau. But then grabbing on to Esau's heel as he's being born is the other baby. Uh, like, he, he does not want to be left behind. And so because of this, they name him Jacob, which it sounds like the word for heel grabber. Uh, but, but what's interesting is that rather than just being cute, um, that, that word actually has the sense of trying to like drag someone down to take their place. Um, and it has the sense of to deceive. And, and it turns out that this is a pretty fitting name for Jacob. Like his whole life becomes characterized by trying to get ahead by deceiving and scheming and manipulating. And, and Genesis wastes no time showing us this. Like immediately after the birth story in Genesis 25 is the story of Jacob manipulating his brother Esau out of his birthright, which was the special portion of the inheritance reserved for the firstborn. And now again, like God had already said, like not that very many verses before, that Jacob, uh, like before Jacob was even born, that, that the, his older brother is going to serve him. And, and so instead of though, waiting for God to fulfill that promise, we see Jacob immediately beginning to take matters into his own hands. And he manipulates Esau into trading his birthright for a bowl of stew. And deceive, imagine Esau isn't too happy in Aram. And on the way, God comes to him in a dream. And so in Genesis 28, Jacob has a dream of a ladder or steps going up to heaven. And angels are going up and down on this ladder. And at the very top, God is standing. And God tells Jacob that he's going to give him the covenant blessing that had passed down from Abraham to Isaac. He's going to give him the land. He's going to multiply his offspring. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him, and God is going to be with him wherever he goes. So, so not only before he was born, but then now directly to him, God has told Jacob that he's going to bless him. Like he doesn't need to deceive and scheme to get ahead. So when Jacob wakes up, he names that place Bethel or the house of God, but, but he doesn't yet leave behind his sinful ways. Um, he, he goes on then to his uncle Laban's place, and, and at first there, 
he gets a taste of his own medicine, right? Like Laban deceives Jacob into marrying the wrong daughter uh, and then manipulates Jacob into working for him as a shepherd for 14 years so that he can ultimately marry Rachel, who's, who he loved and wanted to marry in the first place. Uh, but, but Jacob's not about to be un, uh, out-deceived. And so he manipulates Laban and Laban's sheep. And in the end, Jacob ends up owning most of Laban's flock. And so now Laban's not too happy with Jacob either. And so Jacob realizes it's time to leave while he's ahead. And he takes his family and his sheep and he runs away to go back home now. And so on the way, Laban catches up to Jacob, pretty upset that Jacob would just run away like that without letting him say goodbye to his daughters and his grandchildren. But he's also accusing Jacob of stealing some household idols that belong to Laban. And so Laban searches all over the place, but he's not able to find these idols, and he ends up letting Jacob go. But before they part ways, they set up a pillar and a pile of stones, and basically they say to each other that neither one of them is going to go past this point to bother the other one anymore, right? And the name of that place becomes Gilead. Um, And so then now... Laban's behind him, Jacob's looking ahead, but now he realizes that there's a bigger problem ahead of him, right? Like he's headed back toward his brother Esau, and they didn't exactly leave on the best terms before. So he starts to get pretty worried now. And at this point, Jacob finally cries out to God for help. He's so nervous that he actually goes that far. But then he does what he always does again. Uh, he, he starts to scheme and manipulate. He puts together a bribe to send ahead to try to manipulate Esau. And then he comes up with this plan to protect at least part of his family, like the part of his family that he cares about the most. Um, and, he, and he puts all this plan into motion. And then that night, while he's all alone, God comes and wrestles with Jacob. And they wrestled all night long. Like Jacob would not give up. Like, this is how desperate and afraid he is. Like, he will not let go. And do you remember what happened? At the end, God, the next morning, they wrestle all night long. The next morning, God touches Jacob's hip and puts it out of socket and tells Jacob to let him go. Jacob's like, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. Like, he just will not let go. And, like, God has to be thinking at this point, like, seriously? Like, haven't you paid attention? Like, I've already blessed you. I told you back before you were born, and then I told you again at Bethel, like, I've already blessed you. Like, why are you fighting so hard? And and so as we read Jacob's story in Genesis, we can see all along, though, that, that while Jacob is deceiving and scheming and manipulating, that it is actually God who's the one who's protecting him, who's providing for him, and carrying him along, just like he said he would. So if Jacob would even have just been paying attention, he would have seen that God is keeping his promise. But Jacob didn't seem to realize it, and he just could not trust God to keep his promise. Like, he lived his whole life as if it was all up to him. Like, he scraped, he clawed, he manipulated, he deceived, he wrestled his whole life for what God had already told him was his and what God alone could give him. Back into Hosea, deceivers just like their father, like Jacob, their father. And, and in light of what we just saw about Jacob and what characterized Jacob, here's specifically what he means by that. It says, instead of, instead of trusting the Lord to bless them, they tried to take matters into their own hands. Like instead of trusting the Lord to bless him, Jacob was constantly trying to take matters into his own hands. And instead of trusting the Lord to bless them, Israel is doing the exact same thing. 
Like God had given them all these promises of blessing. He was going to establish their kingdom. He was going to make them great. He was going to defeat all their enemies. He was going to give them everything they needed. And ultimately, all the other nations of the earth would be blessed through them. Like all they had to do was be faithful to God and trust him to fulfill his promises. But what did they do? Like, they were unfaithful to him, right? They left him for other gods. They didn't trust him to keep his promises. They were, they were afraid that maybe he wouldn't protect them. He wouldn't provide for them. And so they took matters into their own hands. And so how did they do that? Uh, Hosea gives us three examples here in this chapter of how they were deceitful like Jacob, their father. And you can see these on your handout. First of all, Israel pursued political alliances to protect themselves instead of trusting in the Lord to protect them. We see this back in chapter 12, verse 1. So look back up there with me um, real quick. This, we read this earlier, but let's back up and look at this. Uh, 12.1 says, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Like we've seen this throughout the book of Hosea. Like one of the main ways that God continue, or that Israel continues to act unfaithfully toward God is by pursuing these political alliances with the nations around them. Over and over again, instead of trusting God to protect them, they feel like they have to manipulate things for their own benefit by making covenants with nations like Assyria to protect them from their enemies, by sending resources to nations like Egypt to stay on their good side. And, and God is saying in this verse here that, that these alliances are pointless. It's like they're chasing after the wind. Like feeds on here, it has the idea of herding. Like, like they're trying to herd the wind. They're trying to get it to go where they want it to go. They're trying to get it to stay where they want it to stay. But the point is the wind is uncontrollable. Like you can't do that. And, and then it says they pursue the east wind all day long. Like the, the east wind was this hot, dry wind that would blow through the area and, and just dry out and destroy whatever it touched. So, so not only are they trying to control what's uncontrollable, uh, they're chasing after something that's actually dangerous and destructive. And so these political alliances don't make any sense. Like not only can Israel not control them, they may just turn around and destroy them. But man, they're committed. Um, so as they pursue this all day long, like you can just hear the same sort of desperation in their political alliances that you hear in Jacob as he deceives and manipulates and wrestles. Like they're so convinced that they have to take things into their own hands. They keep fighting and just don't realize that they're pursuing the wind. So that's, that's the first way that Israel's deception manifests itself was in their pursuit of these political alliances. Uh, the second way, you can see this on your handout, um, the second way is that they cheated and oppressed others for their own financial gain instead of trusting in the Lord to provide for them. They cheated and oppressed others for their own financial gain instead of trusting in the Lord to provide for them. We see this starting in verse 7. It says, A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I'm rich. I've found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. So, so another way here that Israel proved themselves to be deceivers, just like Jacob, their father, was by cheating and oppressing others for their own financial gain. Instead of trusting the Lord to provide for them like he promised that he would, they resorted to the same unjust strategies as the nations around them. 
like these false balances here would have been used in the market when you're uh, selling something. Like you would have goods on the other side. What some of these unjust merchants they were supposed to so that they could cheat their customers and charge them more. So, so maybe I would charge you for like five pounds of flour, but I actually only give you four. And you have no way of knowing any difference. And, and God hates this practice. Like it's all through the Bible. Proverbs 20 verse 10 says, unequal weights and unequal measures are both and alike an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 20, 23 says, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord. False scales are not good. Um, God told Israel back in Leviticus 19, 35 and 36, that they were not to do this. He said they were to have just weights and just balances. But instead of trusting in the Lord to uh, provide for them, they again, they take matters into their own hands and they cheat others for their own benefit. And this verse here, it says not only did they do this, they did it boldly. Like the rest of verse 7 says they love to oppress. Like they gladly take advantage of those who are weaker than them, which is how oppression works, right? The strong take advantage of the weak, which makes the weak weaker and the strong stronger. And verse 8 says that Ephraim definitely sees themselves in that strong category. Like they're rich and they're convinced that because of their wealth, like they're untouchable. It's not that they think they really haven't done anything wrong. They just believe that they're above the law because of their position of power and because of their wealth. But just like Jacob, like they, they don't realize that the riches that they have aren't because of their own deceit and scheming. Like They think they got it all by themselves because they were so clever, but they don't realize it's actually because God has been blessing them all along. Like That's what the first part of verse 9 is saying here. He says, I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. It's like God's saying, hello, like, remember me, uh, the one who brought you out of Egypt and gave you this land and all the blessings you have? Like, you didn't do this yourself. But instead of seeing how the Lord had provided for them, instead of trusting the Lord to provide for them like he promised, they took matters into their own hands and cheated and oppressed others for their own financial gain. The third way that Israel's deception manifests itself uh, was that they sacrificed to idols without realizing that the Lord was the one shepherding them. They sacrificed to idols without realizing that the Lord was the one shepherding them. See this in verse 10. It says, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there's iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. So this section's a little hard to follow. Um, it, it's bookended by God explaining how he worked and spoke through prophets to lead Israel. And so in verse 10, he says that he spoke to the prophets, he gave them visions, he gave parables through them. So when Israel was hearing from a prophet, they were hearing from God himself. And then the reason God spoke to his people through prophets is explained in verses 12 and 13 at the end. So Hosea brings Jacob back up as an example. And so just like Jacob guarded sheep in Aram, remember we heard about that when we were talking through his story, so that he could marry Rachel, God is doing the same thing through the prophets. And so remember, this whole book of Hosea is about how God is pursuing his wife, Israel. And so just like Jacob pursued his wife by shepherding, God is pursuing his wife by shepherding as well. But in this illustration, not only is Israel the wife being pursued, they're also the sheep as well. And, and God is shepherding them through the prophets. 
first through Moses the prophet who God used to bring Israel up out of Egypt. And then he continued to guard and protect and shepherd them through many other prophets, including Hosea, who God spoke to and gave visions to and gave parables to. So all along the way, God was pursuing Israel like Jacob was pursuing his wife. And God was shepherding and guarding them through the prophets. But how did Israel respond? They respond by by thankfulness to God all all the way through this book. Um, The first part there, Laban caught up with Jacob as he was running from him. And and what happened when Laban caught up to Jacob? Uh, He accused him of stealing his household idols, right? And and he searched through all Jacob's stuff to try to find these idols. But Rachel had hidden them, and so they got away with it. But God's saying, you're not going to be able to deceive me like you did Laban, like Jacob did Laban. Like, I'm going to search, and you're not going to be able to hide the idols this time. And he finds them in Gilgal in the next part of the verse here. Gilgal was one of their main idol worship centers. But it didn't start out that way. The history of Gilgal is is incredible too. Like Gilgal was where Israel first crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. And if you remember that story, what they did when they first got over there, while the priests are still standing in the middle of the Jordan River and the water's dried up, Joshua has 12 people go back into the middle of the river, grab 12 stones and bring them out. And they set these up as a pillar in Gilgal to remind them of what God had done for them and bringing them through the wilderness, bringing them across the Jordan River and into the promised land. And so God had been faithful to them and he brought them into the land and they set up this reminder uh, for themselves. But instead then of this being the place that continued to remind them of God's faithfulness to them and his power in bringing them into the land, they turned it instead into a center of idolatry. And so instead of just the, this one heap of stones that's to remind them of what God had done for them, they had piles of stones and altars everywhere to all these false gods. And God says these altars are like stone heaps in the furrows of the field. And like, I'm, I'm not a farmer, um, but I don't think piles of stones are helpful when you're trying to plow your field and plant your seeds. Like they would get in the way, um, they would trip you up, they would break your farming equipment, they would keep your land from being as productive as it could be. And like the irony in all this is that they're sacrificing to these false gods because they think that Baal will increase their harvest. And God's saying it's doing the exact opposite. It's having the exact opposite effect. And so the reason that that verse is bookended by the parts about God shepherding his people through the prophets is that we're supposed to see the contradiction here. That Israel is sacrificing to these idols to try to manipulate a good harvest for themselves. And they're completely ignoring the fact that God is sending these prophets to shepherd and guard them. And they're not listening to the prophets at all. And so in all of this, the accusation against Israel is that they're deceitful like their father Jacob. All their political alliances, their social injustice, their spiritual adultery are all proof of their deceitfulness. And God is going to deal seriously with their deceitfulness. You see that next on your handout. This is exactly what God warned them in chapter 12, verse 2. It says he has an indictment against Judah. He's going to punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. And then at the end of this chapter in 12, 14, it says he will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Like, it's the same principle we saw a couple weeks ago in Hosea 10. God is warning Israel that they're going to reap what they sow. 
And so in this passage, he gives a couple of specific ways that God warns Israel that he's going to deal with their deceitfulness. You can see the first one in, in uh, verse 9. It says, he will send them back into the wilderness. Like, this is what he says after the accusation about Israel's injustice and oppression. They say, oh, I'm rich. You can't touch me. And God says in verse 9, I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feasts. Like, he says, you think you're untouchable because you're rich, but I'm God. I'm the one who brought you into the land from Egypt and gave you everything that you have, and I can take it all away. And, and that's what the punishment's going to be. He's going to send them back into the wilderness as if they'd never entered the land. Like the appointed feast here, it's the, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Every year, Israel would spend a week living in a tent like they would have used to live in when they were wandering in the wilderness to remind them of how fun those 40 years. It was a reminder of where they came from and how God had been faithful to them and how he blessed them by bringing them into the land so that they didn't have to live like that anymore. But because of their deceitfulness, God says that one of the ways he's going to deal with, their, with them is by exiling them from the land and sending them back into the wilderness again. And we've seen this a few other times in Hosea. The result of Israel's unfaithfulness is going to be the exodus reversed, or in this case, Joshua reversed. But that's not all. Even more serious than this is the punishment promised in 1214. It says he will leave their blood guilt on them. Look at verse 14 here. Um, Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and he will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Like all this comes on the heels of the final accusation of Israel's continued idolatry. Like God continues to shepherd and guard them, but they just keep provoking him with their sacrifices to idols. And so notice the relationship language changes here. It's no longer God pursuing his wife or shepherding his sheep. Lord here, it's lowercase. So it's not God's name. Like this is, this is a title. It's the, it's the title for a master. Like God is now relating to Israel as their master. And it's like he's done pursuing them. He's done covering over their sin. He's gonna hold them accountable. Like they are guilty of crimes that deserve capital punishment and he's going to leave their blood guilt on them. And and. That's how the chapter ends. Like, I mean, it's terrifying. But I mentioned there's one glimmer of hope in this passage. Uh, it's in the one verse that we skipped over earlier. So if you remember, we left off Jacob's story when he's wrestling with God and begging God to bless him. And so, yeah, you remember the rest of that story? What, what did God do to Jacob? Kind of touched on it a little bit. Like, he broke him, right? He, he humbled him. And he made him stop scheming and deceiving. Like God touched Jacob's hip. He puts it out of socket and he says, let me go. And Jacob's not going to do it. He still won't let go. He says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And so what does God say next? He says, what's your name? So remember when, when Jacob was deceiving his father into giving him the blessing? He disguised himself as Esau. Even though Isaac was blind, he kind of sensed something was off. So he, he asked basically the same question, like, who are you? And Jacob lied, right? He said, I'm Esau, your firstborn. And he deceived Isaac into blessing him. But now God is asking Jacob the same question. What's your name? And he's saying, I'm not your blind dad. Like, you can't deceive me. I'll bless you, but it's not because you deceived me into doing it. Like, you have to be honest about who you are. And Jacob says, I'm Jacob. And God transforms him. Like, Jacob walks away with a limp, with a new name, and he goes back to Bethel. In Genesis 35, 1-3, God says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. 
Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household, to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Like he finally gets it. He finally sees God's faithfulness to him throughout his life and he puts away his idols and he makes an altar to the true God. He turns from his deceitfulness and he returns to the Lord. And so right in the middle of Hosea 12 then is a call for Israel to stop being like Jacob the deceiver and start being like Jacob who finally turned from his deceitfulness. You can see this on your handout here that Israel's only hope is to turn from their deceitfulness like Jacob their father. Let's pick up it real quick at the middle of verse 4 just to get the flow of this again. It says, He met God at Bethel. There God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. So the God who spoke to Jacob at Bethel was speaking to his descendants as well. And this is the call to them. First, you can see this on your handout here. It's not Hosea, how is idolatry? Like they had so crookedness or the house of deception, which is fitting given the theme of chapter 12 here. But, but Hosea calls Israel back to the true God who revealed himself to Jacob at Bethel by his memorial name, the Lord, the God of armies. Like he is Israel's God, not the false gods that they sacrifice to there now. And Israel must turn from those idols and return to their true God. Oh, and I love how this is worded. Like they're, they're called to return to their God, but Hosea knows they can't do it on their own. So he says, by the help of your God, return. Like they need God to transform them the same way he did Jacob. So that's, that's the first thing that Hosea calls Israel to do. By the help of your God, stop lying about who you are. Stop the deceiving. Turn from the false gods you've been worshiping at Beth-Avon and return to the true God who revealed himself to you at Beth-El. The second thing he calls them to do is to live like God's people now by constantly striving to love God supremely and others humbly. Like, oh, we could spend an entire sermon on this one point and we're already running long, so we're not going to do that. But, but love here is, is covenant love. It's loyal covenant faithfulness. It's the kind of love that God has for Israel and it's the love that they're supposed to have for him as well. And, and justice is doing what's right but it's specifically making things right where there's been injustice. So working to stop oppression and, and to restore those who have been oppressed, which makes sense because like when you don't have to fight for your own good anymore, like you're free to fight for the good of others. And, and this is the exact opposite of how Israel has been acting. Like instead of unfaithfully worshiping other gods, they're to love God supremely. And instead of cheating and oppressing others, they're to love others humbly and specifically work against oppression. It says they're to hold fast to these things. Like this is not a transformation from being a striving person to being a passive person. Like it's a transformation from a person who strives for their own benefit to one who strives to be faithful to God and to work for justice for others. Like that's what characterizes those who've been transformed by God while they wait patiently for the day that he will bring the ultimate fulfillment of his promise, which leads to the final thing that Hosea calls Israel to. You can see this on your handout. He calls them to cling to God's promises while waiting for the day when he will ultimately fulfill them. Like, they're, they're to wait continually for their God. Like, and this isn't passive either. This is active faith. Like, this is clinging to the promises God gave them and trusting that he will be faithful to bring them to pass. 
This is continuing to love God supremely, love others humbly, even when it doesn't make sense, because you're confident that God will bless you like he promised. And this is continuing to persevere in faith, even when things are difficult, because you know that in the end, he's going to be faithful to his promises. This is Israel's only hope to avoid the judgment that's coming because of their deceitfulness. Turn from your deceitfulness like Jacob. Return to the Lord by the help of your God. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God, knowing that he will be faithful to his promises. Uh, and, And here's the deal. Like all this is true for Israel, but it's true for us as well. Like we have been deceitful just like Jacob and Israel. You've probably already been picking up on that and seeing it and feeling it as we've been going through this. But as we wrap up this morning, I want to just really quickly run back through your outline there one more time and talk about how all this applies to us. Because you can basically cross out on your outline all the Israels and the thems and replace them with us. Like we are deceitful like Jacob. Like instead of trusting the Lord to bless us, we take matters into our own hands. Like maybe we haven't been in a position to pursue political alliances the same way that Israel did, but aren't we always looking to align ourselves with others who will make us appear better, more powerful, higher status, make us feel more secure? C.S. Lewis called this the lust for the inner ring. Uh, he said, I believe that in all men's lives at certain points and in many in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one error of being kids, that everyone wants that group. And so instead of being secure in our identity in Christ, instead of trusting that we have everything we need in Jesus, we convince ourselves that we've got to align ourselves with certain people to lift ourselves up. And, and honestly, like as I've thought about it this week, I'm not so sure that there hasn't been a political side to this as well. Like, have we let the fear of losing our influence or losing a certain way of life drive who we align ourselves with? And not only do we do that, not only do we try to lift ourselves up by aligning ourselves with certain people or groups, um, while, while we maybe don't use false balances to cheat others uh, like Israel did, we're, we're quick to put others down and take advantage of others whether that's with our words or by our actions. Like if we can't get above someone else by who we align ourselves with, we try to put everybody else down and get ahead of them that way. We take advantage of others so that we have more than them or have power over them. Like our deceitful hearts are so quick to convince us that we're better than someone else and to treat them as if that's true. Like, like if you have siblings, um, you've probably done this to them. Um, maybe you've done it at work with your coworkers. And like we're seeing the effects of this all around us right now as our culture for centuries has said that whites are better than blacks and put systems in place to keep it that way. And, and as much as we may want to distance ourselves from that, like if we're honest, like many of us right now are learning how guilty we've been. And not only those things, um, but we also we may not sacrifice to idols like Israel did, but we're all guilty of looking to other things to be for us and do for us what only God was meant to be for us and do for us. Instead of trusting him to shepherd us and guard us and provide for us and give us rest, like we idolize money, we idolize comfort, we idolize control, and we idolize whatever or whoever we think will provide those things for us. And so, like, we are guilty just like Israel. We deserve to be repaid for our disgraceful deeds. Like, we deserve to have our blood guilt left on us. Oh, but the good news is that God didn't leave our blood guilt on us. Like he sent another son who wasn't deceitful. 
He sent a son who would perfectly love God and love others and wait for God to keep his promises. He sent his only begotten son, Jesus. And Jesus lived the perfect life that we failed to live. And he took our blood guilt on himself on the cross. Like He paid for our deceitfulness and our disgraceful deeds so that God could have mercy on us and transform us like he transformed Jacob. And so now the call to us is the same as the call to Israel. Like, uh, and it's, it's so important to get these in right relationship to each other and, and to not lose any of them. All three of these things. Like first, we must repent and return to our God. And if, if you've never done that, that's the first step that you must take. Stop trying to fight in your own strength for what God has already promised to give you and what you can only get from him. Turn from your deceitfulness. Be honest about who you are to God. Like he can transform you, but it's only by his help that you can repent and return to him. So cry out to him. Ask him to transform you like he transformed Jacob. And so if that's you this morning, that's the first step that you have to take and would encourage you to do that. If you need to talk to someone even before you leave, please find one of us. We'd love to talk to you about that. But then as those who have been transformed by God's grace and his mercy, then second, we live like God's people now. And we do that by holding fast to love and to justice. Like we pursue growing and knowing God and growing in faithfulness to him with the same energy that we used to use to pursue our own good. And we fight against anything that would steal our allegiance and our worship away from him. And we pursue justice with all the same energy we used to use to pursue our own good. We, we of all people who've been shown so much mercy and grace should be the first to speak and act against oppression and injustice in any form and to work for the restoration of those who've been oppressed because that's what God has done for us through Jesus. And because by doing that, we give the world a little glimpse of what Jesus and there's so many opportunities in our love for God being this while we wait continually, just we work for being perfect before he returns. But instead, we do all this while we wait continually for God to fulfill all his promises. Like we're still waiting for the day when Jesus will return and establish his kingdom and we will be with him forever and he will bring ultimate final justice and wipe away every tear from our eyes. Like that day is our hope. That kingdom and that king is our hope. And so while we hold fast to love and justice, like we boldly proclaim that kingdom to come and by faith we cling to that promise knowing that we can trust our faithful God to keep his promises. Like, oh, we're born deceivers like Jacob. We deserve to have our deceitfulness dealt with. But praise God, like he dealt with it through Jesus' sacrifice in our place so that we can be transformed like Jacob. And instead of being characterized by deceitfulness anymore, we can be characterized by faith that repents, that holds fast to love and justice, and that waits continually for our God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we were born deceivers like Jacob. Lord, we deserve to be repaid for our disgraceful deeds and to have our blood guilt left on us, just like you promised Israel was going to happen here. That, that deserve, we deserve that same judgment, that same fate. But Lord, in your great mercy and your grace, you sent Jesus to take our blood guilt on himself, to pay for our disgraceful deeds so that you could have mercy on us and transform us like you transformed Jacob. So God, I pray this morning that by your help, some would repent and return to you even while we're sitting here this morning. Lord, would you do that? Would you work in hearts and draw people to yourself? Only you can do that. And so Lord, by your help, cause some to do that this morning.
God, I pray then that, that those of us who have been transformed um, by your spirit, through your gospel, um, that we would live like your people now, that we'd be characterized more and more by love and faithfulness to you and by love for others that leads us to work for justice. Lord, we have all of these opportunities right around us right now. Lord, open our eyes to see them. And Lord, may our, our words and our actions give evidence to the fact that we belong to you and give a glimpse of your kingdom to come. And Lord, in the middle of all that, I pray that we would wait continually for you and cling to your promises because you're trustworthy, Father. We can trust you to keep the promises that you've made to us. Lord, help us to not live like we can't. Help us to, to, to cling to your promises. Lord, we believe that you will keep them. Lord, stir our hearts with these things this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.